Morning. Well, you're up, you're dressed, you had your coffee. Don't you love those time changes? Uh, they're saying we might finally actually change it. I don't know. We'll see where that goes. Uh, good to be back uh, home at Cedar Home here. Uh, since I left you last, let's see, I've been in Erie, Pennsylvania, Lake Nona, Florida, uh, Celebration, Florida, over to uh, Los Angeles, down to San Diego, back up to Camarillo, California, home just to do some wash, back into uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and then back to uh, Los Angeles again, Preach at Christ Church LA, and, uh, and then finally back home. So a uh, little road weary, but uh, uh, it's good to be back with you, a familiar place, and thank you for your ongoing kindness to me as we get into this time of year. Uh, historically in the church, the, these 40 days are called what? Lent. And the idea historically was that it was a time of year when you could give 10% uh, of your time, a tithe of the year to God in a time of special spiritual focus. And so over these next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be focusing on uh, Jesus and his uh, trip to the last days, you just heard the reading that Jesus was very conscious of what was going to happen when he arrived in Jerusalem. Well, how did he know that? Well, he knew that in a lot of ways. One was his command of Scripture. Because, uh, because of the way he understood and knew Scripture, he, was, he understood, you know, Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our, by his stripes were healed. He understood the prophecies about how the Messiah the suffering servant was going to be treated. But, you know, obviously he has greater knowledge even as, as uh, the Son of God. But he understood everything he was going to head into. One of the recurring themes in literature is uh, somebody maybe who's dying and they're going through the last few weeks of their life and what do they choose to do? And so I I'll ask you, if you knew you had like a month to live... Would you be just doing what you do now on a normal day? Some of you would actually say, well, probably, yeah. Uh, I remember Martin Luther said, if, if I knew I was going to die, you know, tomorrow, I'd still plant a tree today. Uh, and a lot of us like the routine of, of our lives. But some of you would say, well, no, there are some people I need to talk to. There are some things I need to make right. There are, there are some things I need to uh, confess and, and be open about and, and confront in my personal life. If we were to get serious about 40 days of uh, spiritual focus, what, what would we do? How would we focus our attention on that? So let's follow Jesus for a few weeks. Let's see the route he took from where he was up in his familiar area. If you've been to the Holy Land, you know that all that area on the north end of the Sea of Galilee was pretty much where he lived his life. I remember the first time I went there, how surprised I was. Uh, and by the way, the only time I went there, I don't want to... Uh, how surprised I was how close these places were. You know, that like Nazareth and Cana and Bethsaida and uh, all of these, they're like, you know, just, you know, not that far, just a couple miles from each other, each one. But it's so beautiful there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And he's coming from there, but now he's going down to Jerusalem. And what we're looking at today is, is he's beginning that journey, uh, and he begins to take the straightest route, which would go right through Samaria. And that's what we're going to encounter with him today. 
again, in, uh, on our journey to Jerusalem, uh, did we have this slide up? Has it been? Okay. Have you seen that already? I, I couldn't tell if you saw it or not. And uh, let's go forward one to Luke uh, uh, chapter 9. Listen to me. Remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. Let's pray. Father, as we think about uh, our Lord Jesus and these last days of his life, we pray that you would help us as we journey with him, that you will meet us at our points of our need for commitment, our need to really be able to embrace Christ in a fresh way, and our, our desire to find a freshness and a new joy and a fresh love in the journey. In Jesus' name, amen. The text makes it clear that uh, he knew that he was going to be betrayed and he was going to be turned into the hands of his enemy. The earlier one said he knew he would be uh, opposed by the religious people. But now we come to our main text, Luke 9, 51. If you have your Bible, you can open it there. It's interesting in the book of Luke. You know, Luke, uh, uh, here's, a, here's a question. Who wrote most, you're going to guess now, who wrote most of the New Testament? What do you think the average person would say? Probably Paul, right. But in terms of the number of pages in the Bible uh, and the space he, it takes up in the Bible, Luke wrote most of the New Testament. In his two books of Luke and Acts, it takes up more space in the New Testament than any other writer. So he's a very significant writer. He's a doctor. He's very precise in his language. He's very precise in his history. And it's interesting that we're going with him to Jerusalem because he loved Jerusalem. It was his favorite place in the world. And we're going to go there with him and with Christ. And as we look at this, uh, this text, uh, it says in Luke 5, 9, 51, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, so Luke right away draws it to the fact that Jesus wasn't just going to the cross and the grave, but ultimately he's going to the ascension. He's going back to heaven. And Luke is trying to draw a scenario that's different maybe we would think he would say as he's going to the cross or something. But he is actually seeing all the way to the time when Christ, you know, leaves the earth and heads back to heaven. It says, as the time uh, drew near, and that literally means as the days were being fulfilled, or as the time was being fulfilled. So Luke sees this all as Jesus is doing all the things that prophecy has foretold. Previous to this, Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration greatest Bible conference in the history of the world. Who are the speakers? Jesus, uh, Moses, and Elijah. Who, uh, how many came to the meeting? Three, Peter, James, and John. And I, I see this kind of summit conference with Jesus going over Moses. Have I fulfilled the law now? Have I, am I the perfect sacrifice that I want to be to present myself to God? And meeting with Elijah, have I fulfilled the greatest of the prophets? Have I fulfilled all the promises, all of the things that were told about the Messiah who would come? Anything left to do, what do I have left to do to fulfill uh, what I'm called to do? Now here's kind of the route map he takes, and you'll see he starts off here at the, at the top of, uh, up in Capernaum, and he comes down now, uh, and as he gets to Ganae there in Samaria, we're kind of coming uh, to meet with him now. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. He, <laughs> you might think, well, who does he think he is, Jesus or something? No. Uh, 
it, it's not like that. Yeah, I got to remember, he's got his disciples with him. He's got these, uh, this group of about five women who took care of all of their, you know, raised the money, fed, fed them all. He's got, uh, in the beginning of chapter 10, it tells us he sends 72 disciples out. We know that other places in the Bible, it says there were hundreds of people that were following him. So this is an entourage of people coming. And Jesus is kind of saying, hey, we don't want to scare anybody here. We don't want to freak you out. But there's a bunch of us who are coming to your town. And, uh, and so it's interesting that uh, the people, verse uh, 53, of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, why, was it, why were they so offended by the route that he's going to Jerusalem? I remind you of what the woman at the well says to Jesus in John 4, uh, in 20, uh, verse 20. Tell me, she asks, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. So you'll see this was a contentious point all along with the Samaritans that, that Jews believe there is only one place that, you know, God's to be worshipped and sacrifices are given, and that's in Jerusalem. Uh, here's an interesting fact from the InterVarsity Bible backgrounds. Even before uh, John Hacanus, a Jewish king, had destroyed the Samaritan temple in the second century B.C., Samaritans and Jesus had detested one another's holy sites. Samaritans later tried to defile the Jerusalem temple. So you see again, pre, you know, 200 years before Jesus even came, the Jews went and they destroyed the, the Samaritan place of worship. Why were they so mad and why were they upset that he's going to Jerusalem? Because the contention between where God should be worshipped was so severe between these groups and these groups didn't like each other anyway. Now we come back to the route. Uh, I'm sorry, wait, not yet. Uh, when G James and John, verse 54, saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? <laughs> you know anybody like that? Yeah, married, no, you're not married. You know, who do you know like that? I mean, think about that. These guys were, their nickname was the Sons of Thunder, and you understand why. Uh, we would just say they had a problem with anger. And I'm thinking, I'm so, I'm so cynical at times. I would, if I was Jesus, I'd say, yeah, yeah, guys, I want to see you do that. I'd like to see you call down, you know, like Elijah, call down fire from heaven. Yeah, I'd love to see James, you and John, you go do that. You know, uh, <laughs> obviously what they're saying is, Jesus, we want you to call down fire from heaven, and we're going to go along on the ride. You know, and, and they knew that that wasn't who he was. And it says in the next verse, he, he turned and he rebuked them. So they went on to another village. Jesus didn't put up with that. He didn't give it a wink and a nod. He doesn't say, oh, that's so cute. He said, you know, he, he rebukes them. No, you know, he rebukes them for their, confronts them for their attitude, for the way that they were thinking and talking and expressing themselves. So now they have to reroute. So now let's go back to our map and uh, go forward one. Yeah, 
you'll see now they've got to go down. And if you look, it was not, a, it was not just a small little change to go to another village. They've got to reroute out of Samaria now, and they've got to head, uh, you know, kind of backtrack and go all the way out to, towards, uh, towards the, the river going down towards the Dead Sea. But Jesus, here's, here's an observation about who he is. If you don't want him, he won't come. You got that? Uh, I think, you know, you know Jesus well, some of you for decades. He doesn't force himself on anybody. You know, sometimes when we give an invitation or something, we offer people the opportunity to come to Christ, to accept Jesus Christ. It, it says, you know, the, the whole Revelation 3 things where he's standing at the door of the church and says, I stand at the door and knock, but somebody has to open the door. When I was a boy, the, I remember the picture of Jesus knocking on the door, and what was unique about it was there was no handle on the outside of the door. It can only be opened from the inside, and I, th I believe that's accurate. And he doesn't push himself on anyone. He doesn't force himself on anyone. He doesn't go where he d is not wanted. And so as we come into this time of Lent, as we give ourselves to special times of being with God, discipline, and focus, which I'd encourage you to do. I would encourage you to, whether or not you've been normally a, a Bible reader in prayer, to, to set aside some time to do that during these days. Uh, if you don't like reading, you know, there's so many uh, Bibles you can just listen to online for free. Bible Gateway, some of these places have all kinds of versions and translations. You can just listen to someone read it for you. There's all kinds of ways. And just to give yourself, uh, ask yourself some serious questions. Where are you with God? Where are you with Jesus Christ? Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Is there something that you need to make right with someone? Uh, one of my friends was telling me he just finished reading Tim Keller's book on forgiveness. And he said it was just transformational for him as he began to think about all the people in his life. And in his life, a lot of it was his dad going back to his father. His father was a, a, a pastor, but his father had come out of a life of alcoholism. And as a result of that, you know, one thing I learned a long time ago is an alcoholic who stops drinking is still an alcoholic. You know, you can be what we call a dry drunk, and you can still have a lot of the same behavior and patterns that you had when you were, when you were drinking. And his father had been difficult for him, and so he had to forgive his father all over again. He had to go back in life with other people. He had been mistreated by churches as a pastor, and he had to go back and forgive the churches for some of the places he'd served for the way that they had treated him. And as he did this, he said it was tremendously liberating for him. This is a time we can give ourselves, you know, it's a special time of, of spiritual focus. Now let's go to the next slide. And this is uh, Luke 9, 23. And it says, Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. This was earlier in the same chapter. And Jesus is going, uh, kind of prefacing, he's talking about being a disciple, being a follower of his, okay? And he says, if you want to do that, if you want to be, notice he doesn't, there's no forcing, there's no making anybody become a disciple. If you want to be one, 
here's, you know, you've, you've got to, he's thinking about, he's just talked about his cross. He says, you know what, you've got to take up yours too. You've all got things in your life that are going to be difficult and challenging, and yet as a follower of Jesus, he doesn't take you into places where he's not going to go with you and help you, but you need to be able to move forward to the places where God wants you to go. It says, uh, uh, again, going back to uh, this statistic, according to recent statistics, the median numbers of years a U.S. worker has been in his or her current job is just 4.4, down sharply since the 1970s. The average U.S. worker will have an average of 10 to 12 jobs in a lifetime. And again, each of those jobs will last, uh, you know, on average, 4.4 years. Uh, no yawning allowed in church. <laughs> it, uh, it's interesting that uh, we are staying with things shorter and shorter over time. And certainly, would you not agree that COVID uh, made that worse? What we call often the great resignation of so many people who've left their jobs since COVID, so many people who've looked for other ways or other places to work because they just didn't like the job they had anymore. And there's been a huge refocusing, but people don't stick with things very much anymore. So the idea of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ and sticking with it for more than 4.4 years uh, is something that for a lot of people is going to be a challenge because, uh, because it's just we don't stick with things. You talk to missionaries in the world, how, how much support do they normally get? If you have a project in a certain place in the world, how long do uh, churches stick with it? And the missionaries will tell you, if you can get four or five years out of a church and a project, that's pretty good because churches get bored with things after four or five years and they move on to something else. And it's just we do not have the attention span to continue to devote ourselves to following Christ. And some of us just take it for granted. Well, you know, I, I told Christ I would follow him years ago. I don't need to keep talking to him about that or living that. Well, yes, certainly you do. It's got to be refreshed. It's got to be alive and ongoing in your life. It says, in going back to our text in verse 57, that there are three people that Jesus meets as he's heading now on this journey. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Boy, that sounds nice. Doesn't that sound good? Uh, now, was he there when Jesus said he's going to a cross and he's going to be suffering and being opposed and going to be betrayed. Did he hear all of that that Jesus just said? I'll follow you wherever you go. We know earlier in, in one of the texts where Thomas, we always call him Doubting Thomas, but in one of the other gospel accounts, it tells us that Thomas says among the disciples, Jesus is talking about Jerusalem, and he says he's going to go, and he's going to face oppression and even death, and Thomas says, let's go with him. And, and he does. I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And Jesus responds. And by the way, Matthew tells us this was a teacher of the law who said this. Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. In other words, uh, kind of the, it's the issue of home here. It's the issue of, of a place. And he says, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, animals in the world that have to have a little place. He said, 
If you're going to be my follower, you've got to be on the move. I am not static. Uh, you know, a lot of times people look at churches, and the biggest mistake they make at looking at churches is that they think churches are organizations, and they're not. They're organisms. They're fluid. They're ever-changing. They're evolving. They're, they're, uh, they're, you know, new people are coming in. Other people are, are dying, getting transferred. Changes are constantly. The church is constantly evolving and becoming something different than it was a few years ago even. And as, as a result of that, you know, in, in leadership, there's got to be this ability to be organic in how we look at, at, at our leadership and how we respond to this stuff. And this guy, he's got to... Jesus senses his heart and he says, you know what, you want to put down roots with me. You can't put down roots with me because I'm on the move. So here's a, more of a modern way. Suppose I were to uh, lead you towards work in which your income would be lower, your prospects, humanly speaking, more uncertain, and your un uh, custom standard of living non-existent. Hey, I want you to come with me. Here's where we're going. Uh, you're never going to get a promotion, of course, anymore. You're not going to know where you live. Your standard of living isn't going to, you know, isn't not going to be existing. Every day, you may or may not have food to eat. Every day, you may or may have struggles with life. Hey, so come and follow me. I like the phrase, uh, skin in the game. It's a phrase popularized by world-famous investor, the sage of Omaha, uh, Warren Buffett signifying a condition in which high-ranking uh, insiders buy the stock of the company they are a part of using their personal money. And I, I'd say to a lot of Christians, do you have any skin in the game? I mean, yeah, you go to the church. We're glad you, go to the, we're glad you come to church and everything like that, but are you invested in it? Do you, do you help out with it? Do you financially support it? Do you faithfully attend it? Do you come to the prayer meeting? Do you take times to support your leaders and pray for them? Do you take times to uh, help out with Easter eggs for the kids program? Do you, are you fully engaged in helping to really make this your church? My dad was a pastor, and he used to go crazy how you he, he, he would walk past a church and somebody would leave like a gum wrapper on the floor and everybody would walk past it, and nobody would just stop and pick up the gum wrapper because it's my church, it's the place where I live, where I go, and I have to help take care of it, I have to help maintain it, and I have to make sure that it's clean and nice and that people are welcome here. Uh, he would go crazy when people would sit in the corner after church and always talk to themselves and totally ignore the visitors and the new people who were sitting around them to not give them a welcome. It's your church, it's your home, it's your place. Act like it is and show some respect and honor for it. But some people just can't put the skin in the game. They can't do it. The second one comes to him, verse 59. He said to another person, come follow me. Now this time Jesus says to the person what he said to the original 12 disciples, come, follow me. And the man agreed. But he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. That's interesting. Um, tradition. You have to understand that in, in the ancient world, well, here's a, here's a quick note. The length of time required for uh, mourning was possibly the reason Jesus didn't accept the excuse of the second man he asked to follow him or that the man's father was not even yet dead. 
there's a lot of possibilities in that. As a son, his responsibility, if his father was dead, was to bury him, but that wasn't the end of his responsibility. He was going to a period of mourning after his father's death, wouldn't leave the house for at least a week, and then eventually he had another responsibility. A year later, he would go into the family tomb, and he would uh, take, at that point, the flesh was off of the bones. He would take his father's bones, put them in an ossuary, and, and put it in a place in the wall of the family tomb. So his responsibilities went beyond a year after his father's death. And so what he's saying to Jesus is, hey, I've got some stuff I've probably got to do for like the next year, but after that, I'll come and follow you. And that doesn't work with Christ. Another said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. What uh, Warren Lightfield says is, family duty that must be uh, forsaken for service to Christ. Let me read again, N.T. Wright. The way to Christian growth is often to uh, allow myself, oneself, to be puzzled and startled by new apparent complexity. Is it, after all, Jesus we want to discover and follow, or would we prefer an idol of our own making? In Luke 14, 26, earlier in this chapter, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Uh, this used to confuse me, but when I was a, a pastor in uh, Chicago for about 15 years, the suburbs of Chicago, uh, when I grew up, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, Arlington Heights, and and. In my town, I used to think everybody in, in Chicago was Catholic uh, because, you know, everywhere I'd go, these huge Catholic churches, and everybody I went to school with said they were Catholic. Now, that did not mean they went to church, by the way. It meant the last time they went to church, it was a Catholic church. But, uh, but they were Catholic. And, and then as I was a pastor there, a couple would come up to me and say, we've got a new baby. We have baby dedications next week. We have a new baby and uh, my mother and father are blowing a gasket because we're not having our baby baptized in the Catholic Church. Now, in Roman Catholic theology, if you don't have that baby baptized, that child is going to spend time in purgatory. So for a Catholic, that's a serious issue to do that. It's not just something that's just cultural. It's something that they believe is theological. So I understand uh, why they would be offended. But I think what Jesus is saying, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ... Uh, there are going to be times your family isn't going to understand you and what you do. Part of being a follower of Christ is that Christ is first and foremost the most important thing. And there will be times in your family life where you will come into a conflict between your love for your family and your love for Jesus. And he, he says at that point, you've got, to choose, you've got to choose him. You've got to choose your faith, even over the family that he has given to you. And I think sometimes we hold family. I, I've, I've had uh, guys, leaders in my church, and who are deeply committed to the church until their kid made the soccer team. And then all of a sudden their kid is on the soccer team, and the soccer team has games on Sunday, uh, and they're traveling. They're really good through the traveling team, so they're gone all day Sunday playing soccer in different places, and all of a sudden church isn't as important as it used to be. Because, well, because they care more about their, you know, their daughter's soccer career than they do about being 
uh, in church. And I think there are problems, you know, that inherently are going to come about in your family life as a result of that priority. It's got to be a choice of Jesus Christ first over everything. And Jesus says, verse 62, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now think about this. Jeremias writes, the plowman concentrating on the furrow before him, guiding the light plow with his left hand while goading the oxen, uh, the oxen with his right, looking away would result in a crooked furrow. It's got to be, if we're going to, you know, do what we're supposed to be doing, we've got to be committed to the task. And if you're plowing a field, you have to look ahead to where you're going. Uh, sometimes I remind myself of this when I'm driving. Don't do this very much. But uh, sometimes instead of looking when you're driving, looking down ahead, try looking about 20 feet in front of the car for just a second or two and see how much anxiety you, you produce by not having a, a long sense of where you're going. You've got to know where you're headed. And if you make up your mind to follow Christ, you make up your mind that's the direction of your life, that's the direction you continue to pursue. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, in a world where success is the measure and justification of all things, the figure of him who was, uh, who was sentenced and crucified remains a stranger. And yet Paul wrote so beautifully in Philippians 3, I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Paul understood what it meant to be a follower of Christ and moving consistently in that direction, looking straight ahead, and focusing on that to really act like a disciple. Father, as we come to the end of our time together today, we recognize all of our failures or some of our failures as, as followers of you that we have not adequately followed you the way that we should. And so in just a few moments of quiet prayer, Lord, we confess our sin to you. We want this Lenten period to be a time when we do have a focus on our spiritual life with you. And we know that there are some mistakes we've made that we need to ask your forgiveness for right now. So hear our hearts and hear our prayers and our thoughts. Would you stand with me? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious throne with great rejoicing to the only God, our Savior, be glory and honor, dominion and power, now and forevermore. And together we said, Amen. Amen. Greet the people around you. Don't forget to turn your cards in. God bless you.